Welcome to Gateways, conversations about the people, places, and possibilities in our regional cities. I'm Amy Whedon. And I'm Ben Foreman. Today we've got uh, President and CEO of Lupoli Companies, Sal Lupoli, to join us, and also a longtime friend of the Gateway Cities here in Massachusetts. And today we're going to talk to Sal about how he got into um, development in these communities and also um, talk about opportunity zones and transit-oriented development. So Sal, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your work in the Gateway Cities? Sure, Amy. And once again, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Amy, for allowing me to come on the show today and talk about the Lapoli companies, but more importantly, talk about the benefits of being in the Gateway Cities as it pertains to opportunity zones and uh, just changing the face of a community. So with that, I'm a local individual. I'm born and raised in East Boston, moved out to Chumsed, Mass., went back to school at Northeastern University. We were at Northeast, and I developed a concept uh, to create a vision called Sal's Pizza. Now, it's just like that, you know, I had an opportunity to speak with my professors, speak with my father and my mother about going into business for myself because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was in my blood. I came up with a concept, ran it by my professors, vetted it out, business plan. And before I graduated from Northeastern, I was signing leases to open my own store up in Salem, New Hampshire. The vision was to scale and go across the state of Massachusetts with this vision of Sal's Pizza. It's a classic hub-and-spokes model. I wanted to create a commissary and then put satellite stores around the commissary. And to be honest, Amy, that worked out very well. Um, today, Sal's Pizza owns and operates approximately 40 to 50 retail stores that are out there with various flags on them. But that also did something special. It also put me into the real estate business because the vision was someday to transition into the ownership of real estate. Now, what's funny about it is along that journey that I was on, I was able to start sticking my toe in the water of certain communities. I learned uh, the affluency of an Andover compared to some of the challenges of a Lawrence, Massachusetts. But with any adversity comes opportunity. And that's when I started to realize back in 2003, the opportunity to purchase real estate, in, which is now commonly known as a gateway city, but in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Now, I have to tell you that Lawrence, Massachusetts is the most challenged city in the state of Massachusetts. It's 351 on the economic scale. And sometimes people get confused when they talk about Mattapan or Roxbury or some of the Fall River, but I can assure you it's Lawrence, Massachusetts. But with that came an opportunity, I think, like no other. So um, back in 2011, I went back and got my MBA from MIT Sloan full-time for a whole year. That was really challenging when you're the CEO of a company and you have about 1,000 employees to kind of transition that every day down in Cambridge. But it was really something special to me because that, too, opened up opportunities in other gateway cities as far as realizing the potential. But today, we own and operate approximately 4 million square feet of commercial space. They are 90% in gateway cities. I'm very fired up to talk about gateway cities. Why? Because that's where job creation starts. You know, when the governor talks about a rebirth or making a difference in the state of Massachusetts, you will inherently hear him talk about gateway cities. You know, this 
state of Massachusetts and Boston has something really special happening, right? Kendall Square is special. But there's another 350 cities and towns outside of Kendall. And that's a lot of what our work is focused on, is these gateway cities. Um, and we're, uh, we've done some uh, recently work around transit-oriented development and how we can look at the infrastructure that exists in the commuter rail um, in attracting folks out to the gateway cities and also expanding opportunities for job, job growth um, and yeah. other things. So, Can we talk a little yeah. bit about Riverwalk and maybe start there? I mean, because that was your first really successful real estate play. It was in a different time than we're at now in terms of how the economy is growing and people are moving around. I think it really succeeded in part because of its highway access, even though it now has commuter rail access too, but um, now we were talking. Did, was the commuter rail there when you decided to develop Riverwalk, when you purchased and started building or, or redeveloping? Uh, ben, Amy, are very astute in bringing up the transit-oriented part of the project of Riverwalk. So to answer your question directly, the train station was not there. To answer your statement, you're right. The highway was huge. But there was, and the tipping point was, a picture that I saw in the mayor's office that someday they were going to build this 800-car parking garage, this new transportation center for the Merrimack Valley that would travel into Boston on the commuter rail in approximately less than an hour. Yep. Now, when I saw that picture, I said, well, I've been in a lot of communities that have shown me pretty pictures and big dreams and big visions. So I picked up the phone and I called a very dear friend of mine in the state of Massachusetts and I said, can you just tell me, is this really a serious project? And he confirmed not only it was serious, but it was fully funded at that point. It just wasn't, it, it, just, it just didn't cut the ribbon yet. So at that point, that was really the linchpin for me to s sign off on a deal where, ready for this, Ben? I mortgaged a home in my children's sleep to buy a building that people um, homeless people were living in that was completely abandoned, that uh, parts of the property had no roof on it, trees were growing out of it, abandoned cars, abandoned trailers. Then these were buildings that had the big red X on them, and, sure. and we know what that means, right? It's, it's not just an abandoned building. It means fire, police. If the building's on fire, do not go inside, let it burn. And that's really what the city of Lawrence, unfortunately, was known for back in 2002, 2003. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So imagine going into a community uh, and purchasing a building where you parlay everything in your whole life up until that point to buy a piece of property. And that property had no tenants. Uh, it had nothing but poor press, unfortunately. And, and, and that's what happens when you're 351, right? Uh, so we came in with a great vision, our team, our family, and the vision was simply, this. How are we going to create what is now commonly referred to as a mixed-use development? You know, I love that term, but back in 2003, if you said mixed-use to you, Ben, respectfully, there's a good chance that nine out of ten people didn't know what mixed-use meant. Mm. You know, yeah. what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, you know, today it's work-live-play, today it's retail, commercial, office, restaurants, you know, housing. So the vision back when I was 37 years old was to go to Riverwalk, invest everything that we had to try to create something that didn't exist. And I'll take it one step further. 
I think our team, the Lapoli Company's team, created something that is really a poster child for the entire country. And I guarantee you this, Ben, if you compared Riverwalk to the other 49 poorest cities in that state, yeah. all right, because there's only, there's only one designation as the poorest city in every state. You can't be, well, we're both the poorest cities, you know, in, in uh, New York, or we're both the poorest cities in California. There can only be one in every state. I guarantee if you compare Riverwalk and realize that in less than 13 years, we've created 5,000 jobs, we became the number one taxpayer in the entire city, more than the utility companies. 15% of the people live there uh, that work at Riverwalk live in Lawrence, Massachusetts. That's 1,000 people almost, right? Imagine you're responsible, your organization created 1,000 jobs in the poorest city in the state. And to date, we have about, we're about up to $350 million in investment in that city. I don't know where that exists, Ben, in the whole country in less than 12, 13 years. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I have a little family history here. My grandfather bought mill buildings just like these in the stockyards of Chicago, you know, 50 years ago. And he quickly tenanted them up and they were performing really well. But it's only in the last decade or two that they've had real value because all of a sudden people started to move into Chicago and wanted to be near L-stops, you know? Yeah. Now, you know, when you bought that building, people weren't really taking transit or interested in living near transit to the extent they are now. There was nobody living near the train station in Haverhill. There wasn't anybody really living near the train station in North Station. Now you got tens of thousands of people who are living near these stations who could get on a train and get off at your property to work. So is that, is, is that starting to be something you think employers are going to not be there yet, but five years from now, could we see people traveling that, that line to get to the job instead of just coming into jobs in Boston? So, so the answer is yes. And, and Amy, l let me describe what challenges exist in gateway cities that not a lot of people understand, and I say it so humbly. Um, you know, <clears throat> I could have gone to these beautiful mill buildings. I mean, we're talking 3 million square feet. They, those are three Prudential buildings, okay? Just imagine the scope of that. Massive. Right? Massive. Yeah. I have a building, if you stand it up, it's as tall as the Prudential Building. I have another building, if you stand it up, it's as tall as the Empire State Building. And I have another building, if you stand the biggest one up, it'd be the tallest, one of the tallest buildings in the world. Oh, wow. At almost incredible. 200 stories. Wow. So these are skyscrapers that are just laying yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been there. I've walked through yeah. uh, Riverwalk. You've got to have <laughs> They're expansive. On, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think what's interesting is this. In order to go to a real gateway city, that has real economic plight yeah. and real challenges, first you have to create the job. And this has been my model since 2007, in my opinion. And it's just my humble opinion from an, our organization. If Ben, if I create the job and you work in the city of Lawrence, well, then you start to incorporate, you know what, this isn't so bad. I work here every day. I start to embrace it. I start to understand it. And then people will want to live eventually near their job. Yeah. So... In other communities, like, respectfully speaking, Andover, Massachusetts, I could build 200 units in an hour. They're all rented because everybody wants to live in Andover, Mass, or Wellesley, or Newton, or Needham. Sure. But in Lawrence, in a gateway city, first create the job. People will work there. They'll embrace it. They'll understand it. Yeah. And then you can take advantage of housing. Other than that, unfortunately, gateway cities, 
have a propensity to be oversubscribed in affordable housing. And I don't think that's the key for economic development is to create more affordable housing. I think every community needs a certain amount, but you also need disposable income for the small entrepreneur, the person that sells flowers on the corner, the person that sells their groceries, the person that sells their you know, cleaning and pizza. And in order to do that, you need disposable income. I need Amy and Ben to work in my gateway city, and then I need Amy and Ben to say, this isn't bad, I'll live here. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when you think about all that space and how we'd like to use it much more intensively than we are now, and if we do that, we certainly create more value for for you. Um, You know, we can't have as many people driving in as we do today. We look at your parking lot already, and it's it's pretty difficult, right? And there's a lot more uh, jobs that we could put there. But it's going to require some people walking to the job and some people coming in on the train. So we need the housing there, and we need the train service that's going to be reliable enough to bring those people in. You're 100% right, Ben. If you come to Riverwalk, and Amy, you've been there before, Mm -hmm. if I place you on the corner of our apartment section, now we have 260 market market rate apartments. Amy, they are not 99, not 99.5. They are 100% occupied with a waiting list. So much that we have just agreed to build another 200 units of purely market rate. And here's the good thing, Amy. We have units in Lawrence, Massachusetts that Ben and Amy and Sal and Paula and Michelle's of the world, they're now paying over $2,000 a month to live in these beautiful top-of-the-line lofts, and that's really important, Mm -hmm. top-of-the-line lofts in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Isn't that a good thing? It certainly is. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the conversation about gateway cities is changing, especially with the housing market in Boston getting to a point where people can't afford to live here. And so it's actually put gateway cities on the table as a viable option for folks to live. Um, And I think that um, you're 100% right in that um, the combination, you know, this this, uh, inclusive growth that we need, but focused on market rate in the gateway cities um, to drive uh, to drive residents that have that disposable income, which will spur the local economy. Um, you know, what do you, so, so going back to the Lawrence project, um, how, how do you think that transportation and um, the commuter rail, whether it's existing infrastructure, or expanded infrastructure, um, you know, promotes development? So as a real estate guy, um, you made the phone call that said, you know, to, to confirm that they were actually going forward with this project. Do you think had they said, I don't know, Sal, it might be, you know, 10 years down the road, or we actually need a couple shovels in the ground from a development standpoint before we can expand service, do you think you would have gone somewhere else? Or do you think that, um, because a lot of the times we have this chicken and egg conversation, you know, is it development first? Is it housing? Or is it transit? Uh, What do you, you know, what's your, what's your take on that? That is, without question, an excellent question, okay? And it's a great conversation kind of a question. What do I mean by that? Because you are right. There's a whole chicken and the egg thing. I'll answer it directly to your question. I still would have moved forward and purchased it. All it did is put the beautiful shine on top of this wonderful idea. If I had taken you to Riverwalk in 2003, you would see bombed-out buildings, buildings with no windows, as I said, roofs, 
total abandonment. And you would say, well, who is ever going to want to work here or live here? Now, what did the transit-orientated part do for the project? Well, here it is. If I take you to there right now today at 7 o'clock in the morning and I put you on, a, on the corner with a cup of coffee, you will see an exodus like you've never seen before. You will see well over 150 people exit the mill, walk 50 feet into the transportation center. So to say that that's not a benefit, I'd be wrong. Mm -hmm. However, to come back to Ben's point, you're absolutely right, Ben. There's something to be said about being located next to highways because also it's not just a transportation center, that commuter rail that'll take you into Boston in less than 60 minutes. It's also the buses. I can walk across the street in that gateway city, get on a bus, and I can be in the Lowell, Massachusetts in 25 minutes. Yeah. Well, that's a great highway. That's a great kind of transition to your Lowell project because you are the transit-oriented development pioneer in Lowell, the first transit-oriented development project in that city. It doesn't have great highway access. It has much better train service than Lawrence does. So is, is the train station there really driving your, your thinking and wanting to do that project more so than it did at the beginning of? So Lawrence is what is now today a $300 million project, and I promise you, yeah. uh, we have just signed our financing to add another $150 million in buildings and infrastructure into the poorest city in the state. That's like I can't help emphasizing it. But what it did teach me, Ben, is when I started to look at other large gateway cities, for example, where you just mentioned Lowell, Massachusetts, I found a mill, and it took me three years to negotiate it, but it sat adjacent to the Lowell Transportation Center. And I saw such success in Lawrence that I approached the governor, I approached the team, and I said, what happens if we could create a partnership? And at that time, our great governor was talking about how do we get people off the road into public transportation. So it was the state of Massachusetts, it was this governor that decided he was going to build a bridge that went from the transportation center right into the biggest project to date in the city of Lowell in the last 30 years, which is the Thorndike Exchange. Imagine, Ben, you're going to be able to get out of one of the luxury apartments, and when I finish, there'll be about 150 to 160 apartments, two restaurants, a wine bar, a cafe, and 30,000 square feet of what we call job creation. You know, Amy, I don't know who's gonna work there, but there's a young Amy that's gonna start her business and she's gonna need quality space at a reasonable price. And that's who's gonna be this young entrepreneur tenant. But imagine right now today or December 1st, you walk out of your apartment down the hallway over a bridge, you take the elevator down to the train station and you walk onto the train, never putting your coat on. That is very, very attractive. And the governor was right because there are many opportunities around the state of Massachusetts where public and private can come together. As a result of that investment that the state made, we have now making a $60 million investment in the city of Lowell. Think of the tax structure. Think of the jobs that we're going to create with that. But here's the ticket. We're taking people off the road. Mm-hmm. We're taking people off the road just like he said, and it's working because right now, we have a waiting list to get into Thorndike, and it's not even open. It won't be open for a little while, and we're working with the state on that. But we're right now more than 50% pre-leased in a project uh, as a result of, wow, I work in 
And it's not just Boston, Ben, right? It's I work in Somerville. I work in Medford. I work yeah. in right. Winchester. I work in Burlington or Woburn area. I it can take the train. The That's right, yeah. Amy. It yeah. opens it up. Don't get hung up on that people take transportation to just get into Boston. Right. No, you know? right. Yep. Yeah. So, Sal, you'll be having, you know, I was at a commission that Stephanie Polk and the governor put together a rail vision commission to look at commuter rail and how we can make that service much better and perform much more like subway service frequency throughout the day, uh, more reliability, faster, uh, which would have a lot of benefit for places like Lowell and Lawrence. And we went around the table, the commission members, much of them from Boston, from places like Foxborough, but they all agreed that this is really about a gateway city's play. If we make commuter real better, it's going to drive investment into the urban communities that want development. And uh, that's really the model we need because the suburban office parks aren't working anymore. Suburbs don't want to build the housing. The secondary roads are all congested. It's really got to be using these mainline rail corridors in a much better way. So I, I really think this, this vision is right, and there's a chance that, you know, Mass Dot will put out a good plan. Oh, he's a busy man. <laughs> But Another a, deal in a gateway city. But a big number is <laughs> going to be attached to this, you know, and I think as soon as somebody puts out a big number, you know, the headlines come out that they're all crazy, and, and I think it's really hard to, to get it done and paid for. So I don't know what your thoughts are as a business leader on, on that question, how we invest in that infrastructure, if it really does make sense. Well, all I can do is uh, I learned many things on the journey I've been on, and mostly from my father and mother, to be honest with you, but certainly from whether it's a professor at MIT or my employees or my team. And, th and this is what I learned. That's, that saying that you have, that you've heard, if you build it, will they, they will come? Well, they'll come if it's in a nice community, but if it's not, you better, you better have something else working for you. Sure. So to your point, when you talk about will people invest, let me give you a for example. We're building the first 10-story building on the banks of the Merrimack River in the third biggest gateway city north of Boston, which is Haverhill, Massachusetts. Yeah. It's called Haverhill Heights. We're already in the ground. We already have our financing. And here's the ticket. Right now, the building is 50% pre-leased. Now, I could have built a five-story building, walked into a lender and said, hey, I have my building that's 100% leased out. Will you give me the mortgage? They would fall over you to give you a mortgage because you already have the leases in hand. But to your point, what we decided to do as a developer is, you know what? We're halfway there. Let's parlay it a little bit more. Let's build a twice as big as building as we twice the size of the building that we can. And let's build something so different. For example, a 10-story building because we want to show other developers in the state of Massachusetts that they can come to gateway cities and not just renovate buildings, create new concepts and people will come there so today to your point will the developers come we're building a 10-story building we're already pre-sold i call it pre-sold but pre-leased 50 percent of the building we've actually stopped taking um, opportunities into that building right now yeah well i've got two questions for you there the first one is the height i mean We've been telling people that our gateway cities are zoned, a lot of them are zoned for 20-story buildings, way bigger than the market supports right now. And, and they look at us like, well, that can't be real. <laughs> no community is going to permit a building that big. But you got 10, 10 stories through the city of Haverhill somehow. So, so, so first of all, what you just said, is you're 100% right. When you're in a gateway city that's challenged, 
challenged is the right word, right? Lowell Lawrence Haven, we just talked about that. I am not going to be able to build a, 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 in certain gateway cities, like, for example, Methuen, Massachusetts, believe it or not, is a gateway city. Why? Because of that algorithm, that formula they put I together. Yeah. Now, we, I don't respectfully... I don't want to put Methuen in the same category as a Lawrence, a Havel, or a Lowell. We Not agree with you. <laughs> yep, we agree with you. But to your point, you know what the smart planning board members and building inspectors and mayors or city councils say in those gateway cities? Hey, listen, let's change the rules. If a developer is willing to come in here, let's give them as much opportunity as we can. I have plans to build the first 20-story building north of Boston in the city of Lawrence. We're building the maximum height right now because no one has done it so far in the city of Haverhill. So 10 stories sounds like, sure, build a 10-story building. And there's a whole vision we have with that, Ben, that I'd like to discuss with you and Amy about, you know, why are you building, you know, when you first think of a 20-story building or a 10-story building, Amy, it sounds a little intimidating, doesn't it, in a gateway city? For sure. If if I was going to build it at one Beacon Street, It'll be rented before I put the last nail. Right. However, Sal, you're going to go to the poorest city and build a 20-story building. How are you going to do that? And why would anybody finance something like that? I'm going to tell you a little trick. And I hope everybody's listening because I want them to be bigger and better than the Lapoli companies because that means the tide is rising for everybody. I was in New York about four years ago. And I had purchased a piece of real estate in Andover, Massachusetts, and I concluded the sale. At the conclusion of the sale, the gentleman that I purchased the real estate from said, have you, any, have you ever seen the needle? I didn't know what that was, so I respectfully said no, and he said, I'm going to take you to it. We jumped in his car, and we went to 421 Park Avenue. Now, 421 Park Avenue is the tallest luxury residential building in New York City. It's 90 stories. You might know about it because... I think it's A-Rod and J-Lo just spent like $30 million on one of the units. <laughs> I got out of the car, Amy, and I looked up and I almost fell over because the building is basically on 12,500 square feet of a footprint. Wow. So when you look at it, you actually almost feel like, you know, it's Disoriented, is exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said to myself, it's so sexy, it's so different, it's so exciting. Imagine taking that concept to Massachusetts. Imagine that taking that to gateway cities. Now, here's the ticket. The building that I just described to you in Haverhill, Mass, sounds like a big building. Wow, 10 stories. Mm. The building is 71,000 square feet. It's on a footprint of 8,000 square feet, and it gets a little skinny, but it's 10 stories. But when you look at it, you say, wow, look at that sexy building and how beautiful it is. That's great. Maybe A-Rod and J-Lo will come. Well, so, so this is our other thing. That, <laughs> by the whole city. You know, by the whole city. We've, <laughs> we've talked a lot about this. You know, The state spent a half a billion dollars at least buying commuter rail or CSX freight rights for the Worcester line. You know, and then across the street from Worcester Station, Union Station, we're building, you know, four or five stories to stick frame construction. You know, it's not really taking adva- advantage of that asset, the infrastructure to the extent we could because the market today is a little soft still, it's still coming back from all those decades of disinvestment. You know, I think it's so important that we get as much density in these places that want it next to the infrastructure that we're all we're all paying for, even if that means providing some incentives to get that additional height. You're absolutely right, Ben, but it's a little bit bigger than that, and I say it very respectfully. Sometimes people will build a building, and they won't understand 
how am I going to get Amy and Ben and Michelle or Paula or Sal, how am I going to get them into the building? Mm -hmm. Because they all have different wants and needs. Every single project we do, we create what we call, how do I describe it? Dollar cost averaging. You ever hear that phrase? It's like you bought a stock at 50 and uh, it went down to four. Did you like it at 50? Yes. Well, then you'll love it at 40 because it just dropped to 40. So you buy it at 40 and now you, you, your dollar cost is at 45. It's almost the same kind of mentality that I have, but I do it with businesses. Okay. I create that. I think about that mixed use and I say, okay, what does Ben want? Ben, I'm going to build you the most beautiful restaurants in my building and I'm going to tell you what, Amy, if you live there, not only will you be able to go there, Ben, and enjoy the restaurant, but Amy, if you live there, you'll be able to call down to the restaurant and they will bring your food up just like a hotel. Your credit card will be on file. It'll have the same kind of quality, look, feel. The cart will come up, real silverware, real carts. And then you know what, Ben? If you live there also or your business is there, maybe you pull your car up front and I'll have somebody park it in the garage or I'll have somebody move it. So we're going to give you some really great qualities, but the whole spectrum. We're going to give you food. We're going to give you housing. We're going to give you jobs. We're going to give you a place to hang out and relax. So it's really building that whole atmosphere. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned yeah, that because we actually lifestyle. did, you, you'll be happy to hear, we did an event with the Boston Chamber last week uh, with their millennial series. And it was a little focus group on Gateway Cities and would you move to Gateway Cities? And what, you know, what we heard was one, people want nice finishes That's right. in their units. You know, it's their first kind of home of their own. You know, they've been living with roommates for years and God knows what in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're going to move out to a gateway city, they want a place that looks nice and has, has quality finishes. But the other thing they said they wanted was a real community. They wanted to feel like they were welcome there, that it was a place for young people in the community. And I know you've done a lot of work in Lawrence, you know, with the test kitchen and other things to create more community and life in, in the downtown. And, you know, how, you know how, how do you get your hands dirty in that sort of, work as a developer to create the kind of quality place that's going to sell who you are is where you came from in life ben um, i'm somebody from east boston um my my mother and father had six boys um when god i lived in east, god bless them yeah <laughs> when i was born we lived in 900 square feet on chelsea street a few doors down from santapio's so i can remember my mother and father you know they slept on the couches and the boys had you know Two of the, we had two of the bedrooms. We had one bathroom. So when you talk about down and dirty, I just, me personally, I, this doesn't go for everybody, Ben. Me yeah. personally. I have an ability to kind of relate to that, embrace it, appreciate it, because who you are is where you came from. So I know how to roll my sleeves up. I know how to understand the challenges that these people have in gateway cities. And I know what would be nice because I, I can reflect on that. I can say, you know what? You know what's nice? We should build this. Because the greatest gift you can give, Ben, is to do something not when you can afford it, when you can't afford it. That's a great gift. My father allowed me and taught me that lesson. He said, your greatest gift will not come when you can sign a check and it, and it doesn't hurt you. Your greatest gift will you sign the check and it hurts and you find a way to get it done. Then you'll really understand what it feels like to have empathy for somebody else. But I think what's really important is to get back to how do we get our arms dirty, hands dirty? Part of the Riverwalk project, I've been since 2010, we had a vision. We had a, it's so corny, 
literally, you know, we, we had a dream to build this. We're going to build a 1,300-car parking garage with an end cap of 60,000 square feet of new jobs. Don't know who's going in there, but I know there's going to be some aggressive companies and young entrepreneurs that are going to go in there. On top of the garage, as opposed to having parking, we're going to build a 120,000-square-foot synthetic field with stands and lights. Now, you say, what are you doing building a synthetic field in Lawrence? I'm going to tell you why, Ben, to the question you just asked. Because we're going to donate part of the time for the kids, the local kids in Lawrence, the local community that doesn't have quality space or quality fields. Now, Good for you. Yeah, we know, know that issue well. We yeah. know one of your tenants beyond soccer, and we know the oh, work yeah, they've been yeah. doing on the field shortages in, yeah. in Lawrence. And, um, yeah. So I, we, that's, I mean, that just demonstrates, you know, yeah. how you've got your finger on the knee. Right. So Good quickly, um, I just wanted to, before we uh, depart here, because I think we're going a little bit over, um, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about opportunity zones. Um, and so um, you have, you know, been a real pioneer in these gateway cities um, in uh, all of the work that you've done, which we just talked about. Um, and now we have this new federal program that's supposed to incentivize uh, folks like yourself to 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 branch into these gateway cities and these markets, um, you know, we spoke briefly before we started recording, though, about um, about uh, the opportunities within Boston. Right, you've got certain neighborhoods that are uh, distressed that could easily be redeveloped with opportunity zones. That's the easy stuff to do. But how do we how, how do we drive people uh, to utilize the opportunity zone program outside of the outside of the hot markets, Boston, Somerville, Cambridge? Yeah. So I learned a phrase when I uh, was lucky enough to attend. MIT uh, from one of my professors and it says it depends he mm -hmm. always used to I used to say professor what about x y and z well Sal it depends and I would say what a way to cop out an answer right. <laughs> it depends I mean we're in the greatest institute in the world and you're telling me it depends <laughs> it depends on I want the answer that's what I want <laughs> but I think what's interesting is this here's the challenge with opportunity zones that we have to vet out and continue to work hard right now there's opportunity zones that are in uh, in South Boston Cambridge, Somerville. So if you were an outside investor and you had an opportunity to take profits from another deal and invest them into an opportunity zone, do you think you would be looking to invest it in Cambridge or do you think you would be looking to invest it in Lawrence, Massachusetts? I know, Cambridge, I That's know, right. I know. So we have to vet that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is still work in progress. The right. regulations literally came out less than 30 days ago yep. because I've been anticipating mm -hmm. them. But your question is, how are we going to get people? The, the bigger outfits, we got to convince them it's going to be hard because they're going to say, why can't I just take my money down the Cape? And why can't I take my money down to you know, South Boston? Those are all proven commodities. Mm -hmm. It's going to come from within. It's going to come from local people that are local developers that are part of the fabric of those communities that are realizing that it's time now to take their money and reinvest it again. So you're going to get what I feel will be a, a, a insurgence of investment from local developers within those communities that have the pulse of what that community is. 
So with that, thank you for allowing us yeah, to be on yeah. your show today. We look awesome. forward to coming up for the Lawrence Partnership event coming up soon, too. Yep. That's a great program. All right. See you Thanks, then. Al. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Gateways, conversations about the people, places, and possibilities in our regional cities. Gateways is produced by Rachel Deck and Lear Johansson.